It's Extra Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations on creativity, culture, and spirituality. And on this episode, we're going to talk about all three. We're talking creativity, because my guest is Paul Meany, and he's one of the most creative dudes I know. He's just always creating stuff, amazing stuff, just cooking up stuff in his studio. And there's a cultural element. And today we're going to talk about the spiritual journey a bit of Paul and Mute Math. I think anybody who's followed Mute Math over the years, I mean, you listen to the music, something's going on. There is a change afoot. And I think uh, being that Paul and Mute Math uh, had so much success with the release of their first album, you know, they got thrust into a whole new world from where many of them had been. And it's interesting. I find it quite fascinating to see how faith has evolved along that way. And so we're going to dig into a little bit of that. Also, we're just going to continue our talk on you know, the, the struggles and joys of creating stuff and the challenges of doing what you do when you're Paul Meany, producing, leading a band. And so we're going to go to part two of this. So Thanks for listening, and if you enjoy what you're listening to, give us some love on Twitter or Facebook or iTunes. Leave a review. Tell some people about it. So here we go. Part two of my conversation with Paul Meany. Now, I do have to say one thing about this conversation. Um, Typically, when I'm recording one of these, I have headphones on, but we just started talking, and I hit record, and... My level was a little high. Paul's was a little low. <laughs> and so some of it was distorting a bit. But we had a great conversation. Sometimes it's a lot, it's a little too hard to focus on the engineering and the talking at once. So something had to suffer. But the content's good. But I just wanted to apologize for that. I think you're still going to dig it, though. All right. Enough about that. Said to this extra crispy conversation with Paul Meany. Let's talk about a, a real central component, certainly through the, the mute math years, and this will probably be a good segue into our next batch of topics. The The first mute math EP, that was that had the uh, take control of the atmosphere and stuff on it. Was yeah. that the one? Yeah. So um, obviously, like even those those lyrics right there, it's very much in this certain frame of reference spiritually for you right. that you're very much coming. I mean, I remember back in the day you would lead worship at, uh, at yeah. victory, uh, in new Orleans. 
or Metri, if anybody uh, lives down there. Um, <laughs> explain a bit of your spiritual journey from where you were when you did that first thing up to say where you are now and, and what that, how that has been a part of the songwriting and mute math process. Cause I know all the guys in the band were initially kind of in the, y'all, y'all were all in the same kind of fre- frame of reference and same kind of place. Right. Um, what was your experience of God and church and faith and all that stuff when you did the first EP versus Armistice and 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 beyond yeah, well, and, and, and where are you now? So. Absolutely, yeah. All I knew is that when we started, is- I'll be back in thirty minutes now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can go take a bathroom break now. I got this, Christmas. Um, all I knew is that when we started, I was trying to find a way to tell of my experience in a way that seemed fresh to me. You know, I knew that I didn't want to. And this is when we're starting Mute Math. You know, I knew that I didn't want to uh, repeat history with what happened in Earth Suit and sort of our our run or, or stint in the Christian music industry. But, you know, I my circle of friends, you know, I was certainly uh, very active at Victory Fellowship at the time. I was helping lead worship. And so that was that was my life right there as we were starting mute math and so yeah i mean i was writing songs from that place and out of that reality but i was trying to find a way to make it more universal where it just wasn't church music and it wasn't just going to go right down the same vortex that i I had just been down but i didn't know how to do it honestly i'm i was yeah i was I, i don't know i was just swinging and so you know, a lot of those songs, yeah, were definitely very worshipful. I think it was certainly directed to God, singing to God, which is something that um, I feel I authentically would do. Yeah. Um, it's so it's a world I grew up in, and I wondered, can I can I make songs like this that can I don't know resonate past people just within those church circles. And that was part of the experiment when we started Mute Math. We wondered and we were trying and, you know, singing songs uh, like Control um, and OK in clubs. Um, one of our first things, we, uh, gigs we had booked was opening for Chevelle. That was weird. Um, <laughs> and singing a song like Without It and You Are Mine, and um, which surprisingly went OK which we learned we learned the delivery method and showmanship was really important and um you know how <laughs> I'll just do a quick rabbit trail real quick you know how someone if if someone was going to sing at the offertory at church and they would start by saying I just want y'all to know God gave me this song <laughs> and you know I just went through something and and it was always a move to hedge Oh yeah, what they were yeah. about to sing, so that you can have more of a heart and tolerance for it, and that's, oh, you know, yes. you had to do that. I've I've been to, to to songwriting share groups where like in 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 at, with with vineyard worship leaders sometimes it's like okay so, where people just share the songs they wrote. Well, this is the song that God gave me, and it, it's immediately like it's well, you because because it's you, not that good. If you, <laughs> if you criticize it now, you're you're criticizing the the authority of you. You want to get tangled with the Almighty on this one, but yeah, right, right. <laughs> well. In the same spirit, 
um, we would play for a lot of audiences that we knew weren't going to get us right away. We're, we're about to play the song Control. And, you know, so a lot of our antics in the beginning of duct tape headphones, you know, that was our God gave me this song or I'm coming out with a guitar, I'm bringing out this homemade <laughs> instrument. And, you know, and all of those uh, things became part of trying to help the delivery method of this mute math thing we were trying out. And it seemed to be working. It was, it was, it was fine. Um, and I, I think there were people that were genuinely connecting with the songs. And as we were building our own audience and just kind of skimming off and, you know, we opened for David Crowder as well oh, in wow. the very beginning. I remember he took us out on tour. Um, and as we, we began to, to build an audience and there is not one band we've ever opened for where I still won't run into them to this day. At some point there was always there was always something fruitful. You'd always find someone in any given audience that, that has a chance to connect with what you're doing. And so I'm thankful for all those bands yeah. that took us out. But to answer your question, the, we were definitely wearing the spiritual part of what we were about very much on our sleeves in the beginning. And I, I think it helped us a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was pretty believable. And... I think the self-titled album was certainly an extension of that. You know, the EP, well, we thought at the time the EP was the rejects from the album and the EP songs actually wound up being pretty um, important to the, the Mute Math journey. But as we began to get thrown onto the world stage more, we began to feel, I did, I began to feel very insecure about the songs I had written, that they weren't, they weren't built enough for the world stage. And it was, it was, yeah, it, it felt maybe, um, I was too exposed. That, yeah. If I'm being perfectly honest, I, was, I exposed myself a lot. I was, I was too Christian-y. I was too... Um, subculture. Too subculture, yeah. And, and it wasn't done in a convincing enough way that could work that we would yeah. be able to go places where ambitions would like to go. But that was me beating myself up because in hindsight, that was the, among the best stuff we did. Dare I say the best stuff because it was the, certainly the most well-received stuff yeah. math had ever done. Even once we started figuring like we were consciously correcting the things and, and, and genetically engineering more our songs to be built for the world stage. And I think there's really something to be, be, to, to, yeah, to be said for that when you are willing to hang yourself out to dry as an artist and the stuff that you think will invite the most ridicule and scorn um, is most of the time the thing that's most interesting and um, the most magnetic about what you are. And it's not the thing that you, it's not the reason you want people to like you or yeah. like what you're doing, but you can't control that. Um, I think, I think, but, am, but can you go back to saying I'm being honest? Yeah. Yes, I was. And it's something that took me years to make my peace with. I think now I'm at a place where it's like, well, I wish I had made my peace with it earlier. I could have saved us a lot of stress and probably band fights, but I learned it.
Yeah, the the hardest thing if if you don't have thick skin. I, I'm kind of wondering as far as this next generation of artists who are kind of coming up in the YouTube era, social media era, where you're almost forced to have a thicker skin than I think is uh, what what I was used to certainly as we were coming up. Um, you know, if it, if it's going to be different um, when it when it comes to what I'm about to say, but it's it was astonishingly difficult for me to deal with when I felt like people were pouncing on the thing I was being vulnerable about. Mm. And when they start, and when you start fielding, having to feel like negativity yeah. on the thing that you reluctantly uh, were letting people in on anyway. Yeah. And it's, you can get callous to that real easy. And it's like, all right, we're shutting that down. I'm not going, I'm not going there. And it's really, it's only a few negative comments. Yeah. It's not the majority <laughs> of the people who are really appreciative of what you're doing, but it's amazing how those negative reviews, those negative, which are usually, they expose something that's kind of truthful. I was like, oh, that's kind of, that is how I felt about it. But I went ahead and said it anyway, and I'm insecure about it, and you just made me feel... Mm. And I and I hadn't developed a thick skin to that yet or realized that that particular negative opinion wasn't as far-reaching and devastating as I yeah. thought it was. But that's the stuff that gets in your head. Uh. Um, and it can shut you down. And, it be, and then all of a sudden you put out your next project and you wonder why is the, the majority of the... That's how it was with Armistice. Like the majority of the fans were like, what is this? I don't get it. And it's like, Armistice, oh, wait, we've been working years, hard on this. How many years passed between the, the Mute Meth and the Armistice it one? It was about two, two and a half okay. years. Yeah, something like that. Um, I remember we did this. I'm sorry, I probably told this story a million times. I'm only going to say it quickly because I remember we did this listening party where we were playing Armistice from city to city, we would invite people to this bus, put them in headphones, let them listen. And then there was a few times where the band members would go out there and also just hang out with the fans and, you know, be there to answer questions about it. It was just a, a connection point of just trying to connect the second record. And I remember this one guy, after he had listened to the record, Armistice, he came up to me and he was crying. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know what? This is, this is what it's all, that's what it's all about. This is why we work oh, so hard. Really? That's what I'm thinking to myself. <laughs> It's like, all right, man, this is this feels good. And he looked at me and he said, will you ever make another album like the first album again? Oh. So he was brokenhearted about what he had just listened to. Oh, and it goodness. was the first time I had realized, oh, wow, you can, you can disappoint people. Um, and again, as much as, as I felt there was a pushback against Armistice when we first put it out and that it just wasn't the debut album and wasn't comparable even looking back at it 10 years now it wasn't as bad no. as i think and that was an important record for us to make oh yeah and i'm really proud of it and i'm glad we did it and wrote those songs i think we could have presented them a little differently here and there but that was something i had to say and that probably goes to the next part of your question which was and i think it's part of the human experience and that's why i'm not I wouldn't talk myself out of it if I, if I had the chance. Like I needed to go there because that's a very natural arc. You, you become vulnerable with something. You let people into it. You start fielding negative reactions. And your, your thing is, is 
you become self-aware. And there's something healthy about being self-aware and then also something that can be self-defeating about being self-aware. And finding that balance is very tricky. But Armistice was a, an attempt to do that. And I felt like I needed to start challenging my Christianity. I needed to start yeah. challenging where I was coming at lyrically. Um, just like I felt I was being challenged when I find myself in an interview and someone was asking me to, yeah, echo what I had just written about and they wanted to dig deeper into it and someone who didn't know anything about the context of church and where I came from and, and I didn't really have good answers. And that was something I took with me into making the next album. Like I wanted to fortify these songs more and be more honest with myself and therefore honest with the audience. Was one of the song one of them, was that on Armistice? That was Armistice. That was a big lyric for me. Oh, I, I think, you know, the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, some shit's happening with Paul. Like, like I, yeah. I mean, I was like, th that was such a profound statement. And I guess even when I heard it, I, I was very much feeling the same kinds of, I, I was in that same kind of process. So I was like, when I heard that song, because I, 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 that was one of my favorite songs on that whole thing, because kind of what you said, there was an honesty to it. Like, I feel like you're not, you're getting down to some real shit here, you know? And, yeah. and I remember hearing those words of like, you know, cause it's the, maybe you could describe a little bit of the, the process of that one and what that was about. Well, you know, I remember you were talking about it in, in one of your sermons where you talked about history is, and how did you say it? History is controlled by the people who writes History the is written by the victors, maybe? By the victors, okay. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. it's it's the people who get to tell the story. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the narrative of America and our history that we tell to our kids and is might be different than the the history of America, how they teach it in the Middle East on what America is. Yeah. And, and, and what I began to realize, certainly as... Uh, we were thrown onto the world stage is that and then even just relationships with the bands and now we're, we're, we're business partners where, you know, it's easy to be misguided into thinking you're always the good guy Ooh. and you're always, there's some people who might look at you as the bad guy and your cause that you think is noble and that you're fighting for and can be, yeah, someone else's evil. And that, that began to, you know, there were probably a few instances um, in, in, as, as Mute Math began to take off where I felt like I was confronting that. And I was forced to zoom out a little bit on, on what I thought my perspective was in life, in, in my own beliefs, faith, whatever it was. And, and certainly as I, I begin to, it was the same time in culture where I felt like there was a certain atheistic movement mm -hmm. and how, and, and certainly in the YouTube, um, I know it was the dawn of YouTube, right? Around yeah. 06, 07. Um, and these open debates that I was beginning to see between 
the Christian point of view and other points of view. You name it. You could type oh, it yeah. in and search it and watch it. And it became very educational to me to kind of watch an identity and a dogma that I identified with for so long be demonized and, 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 mm. and rightly shown where it's wrong. Mm. And it was hard, hard to process that for me, but it was necessary and I, I felt like I needed to and I wanted to and I wanted to be able to look at myself as the way someone from the outside would look at it. You know, one of my big lessons in self-awareness was the first time I auditioned for NOCA. And I remember I had to go into a piano room to audition and the guy just said, all right, just sing, just sing something for me. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what I was going to have to do, but he just wanted me to sing something acapella for him. And so I remember just closing my eyes, trying to think of something. I wound up singing Amazing Grace, but I remember telling myself, all right, Paul, just channel your best Ray Charles. Just do it. <laughs> and then I just let out the most Ray Charles-y <laughs> Amazing Grace I ever could. Can you give us and, an example? <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, at, but at the end of it, I remember the professor looked at me and he went, so somebody wants to be Michael Bolton. <laughs> and I was like... Is that a compliment? And at the time, it didn't seem like one. <laughs> but he let me into the school, so I guess Michael Bolton was good enough. Wow. But what I realized is that your Ray Charles may be someone else's Michael Bolton. Oh, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> and it was important for me as I was getting this lesson in self-awareness and realizing as, as I was thrown into the world stage with Mute Math and how we're being perceived, who our audience was... Who are we? What are we going to say next? What are we even saying right now? That I wanted to examine this person of Paul first, what makes him tick, and then how does that affect this band that I'm in and the songs that we're writing and the message that we're even trying to tout. So it was a big self-examination time in that 06, 07 for me. And certainly issues of faith, issues of how to even articulate that were weighing heavy on me as we went into Armistice. And I wrote a bunch of songs that we, we tabled. They were too heavy. They were too off-brand, I guess, at the time, which we thought. And, you know, God bless the band. They were helping me really trying to sort through all of this. Um, I'm sure they were, were the a other worried as well. Kind of going through this same thing at the same not, level, not as much okay. as I was, yeah. but they they were with me, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, that's the, the, they were the only guys I had to talk to about it. And you know, we were in the interviews together. We were in. We were all kind of shouldering the same criticisms, and we were all were, you know. And they realized that they they in essence they've got to defend or be able to stand up oh, for yeah. whatever I'm saying. Um, and so they're in the same interviews. They get cornered with the same questions as I do. So they were in it with me and they wanted to figure it out too. But, you know, I was certainly leading the charge on it and taking it very personal um, and, and something I wanted to get right. It was a, it was a creative challenge for me. And yeah, I remember I wrote a song called Christian Paranoia, which was, mm -hmm one that still has not been released to this day. We wound up, actually, I wound up revisiting the concept of it in Odd Soul. We wound up changing it to Walking Paranoia. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a great but, song. 
but the, that <laughs> idea started out and that was, yeah. And that was something that I think we needed some time to like figure out how to say it in mm-hmm. a way that the whole band could get behind. And, yeah. and I think that song went into a bit more of Darren's story as well. And we kind of combined some experiences into yeah. walking paranoia, but the original concept started out as this idea I called Christian paranoia. And I remember the chorus was something like, should I Christian it up for you? Should I tell you the things you think the Lord wants me to? And that was, I, I wish I could even remember like what the verses were about. I don't know. I just remember that first chorus line and I don't know where a demo is of that. I'm curious if that even holds up, but there were songs like that. There was a song called Kings, which I just put on the voice in the sun. Yeah. Which at the time was just, it was too heavy. It was too much of a left turn from where mute math was. Um, and what we had established ourselves to be. And I think we were trying to figure out, well, how do we still honor this message and thing that we've created, but evolve it one step um, in the right direction? And that's always a challenge every artist wants to do for every project. You're always trying to be self-aware about what you've established, who you are, and where you can go next believably and still grow as an artist creatively. And so Armistice seemed like the right negotiation that took us a while to figure out within the band, even with the two producers we worked with, um, but one that we were proud of in the end. Yeah. But it still fell short. It still fell flat a bit at the time. And I don't think our audience, our immediate audience was ready for that. They weren't ready for songs like No Response. Uh, which was probably as as hard as I could have been on my faith, yeah. being poetic about it. Be, and but a song like Pins and Needles, I think, really stood the test of time. And at the time when we turned in Armistice, Pins and Needles was all of our favorite songs. Really, and I think ten years later, it's still probably yeah. everyone's favorite song from Armistice. And I, I speak on behalf of the band. Um, that was a special song for us. And the one that we didn't do anything to. That was a demo that was made in the back of the bus. And I think we added some toms and a ride cymbal for the record version. Wow. But it was the original vocal, the original uh, track that was just made from the demo. And yes, the one we're most proud of. Wow. And then like hours. I mean, hours. Like months that we spent on songs like The Lost Year, Electrify, which, which are ones that are make us turn the most at this point. <laughs> Paper thin conviction Turning another page Plotting how to build myself to be Everything that I am not at all Sometimes I get tired of pins and needles Facades are a fire on skin And I'm growing fond of broken people As I see that I Oh 
So moving from Armistice, now you're up in Odd Soul area. What is where's is, where's is the spiritual thing at that? What are the questions you're you're grappling with at that point? Is, at, at that point, it was mainly self realization. We we started realizing who we are as artists um, and what we really have to say. And it was much to the challenge from the record company. I remember there was the new president that came in. Uh, it was Rob Cavallo. And this was a guy who was a, he had produced um, some Dave Matthews. Uh, he had just done Green Day's American Idiot. And now, so he's the president of Warner Brothers. And they were about to drop a bunch of artists in 09, 2010 when he came in. And we came across the chopping block board. <laughs> and it was Rob Cavallo at least legendary has it. The, the A&R guys had told us from the meeting that Rob said, we ain't dropping these guys, even though by the numbers they should have. Cause Rob saw something in us that he thought was special. And it was a couple months later after that, that we sent them our record odd soul. And Rob flew us out. We all went to his house and we listened through odd soul with him. At the time, it wasn't called Odd Soul. We didn't have the song yet. And he started asking some really tough questions. He's like, look, I love the place this album is starting, but it's not done, guys. I know you guys think it's done, but it's not. I really want you guys to open this back up, and I'm going to give you some challenges. And he wound up coming to New Orleans and did some recording with us. But his main challenge was... I need to know who you are. I feel like you guys are getting sucked into just writing songs for what you think people think you should say. I need you to dare to say something you're scared of. Oh. Um, and these were good challenges. And I think as he began to get to know us, and you know, he realized that we had come up in this evangelical Christian scene. He had never worked with a band like that. Um, oh, no, I take that back. No, he had. He, he knew of the scene very well. I think he had just done some things with like the Paramore camp yeah. and, and those guys come from similar places. But he wanted to see us and me specifically as a writer find a way to articulate that. Don't 
don't just hide that into some corner of your bio. It's like, go ahead and throw it out in your music. And so I remember going back and rewriting a few of the lyrics and, and things that I was kind of hiding it more in the poetry. And I thought we were doing that <laughs> to a degree, but we weren't really. We hadn't really fully committed. And Darren was on board as well. And, and so we decided, uh, and Darren was also part of the lyrics in Odd Soul because we wanted to combine sort of our experience. We had kind of come up in this very overt, in the same sort of overt uh, Christian America, more so than Roy or, um, well, it was only Roy at the time. Greg wasn't in the band anymore. And so it was a really fun therapeutic sort of way to write for both me and Darren who just began to just throw it out there and, and, and rewriting the lyrics for like blood pressure wrote the song odd soul walking paranoia. Those were songs that were not in the original bits of odd soul, but, and then we wound up titling the record odd soul and it would became an autobiographical type of album. And it was the first time that I felt like we were trying to, put into some sort of narration who we were as people and the and the experiences that had sort of shaped our artistry and that's what odd soul became about and it was it was received pretty well i mean the oh, the, yeah. the hardest pushback we got on odd soul was the musical stylistic choice that we went down which was we kind of got more blues rocky than we had ever gotten before a great album and you know, so musically, that was very challenging to a lot of the people who had come to the party via the self-titled and, and things like that. And, you know, Black Keys had just gotten really big at that point, so it kind of felt like a bit of a bandwagon jump. Stylistic, so some people weren't, yeah, they just were a little turned off yeah. about that. <laughs> I, so maybe there's some production choices that didn't help the message as much. But for us, I think it was all about getting in touch with our roots and, and telling the story of our roots. And so what we were perceiving as these New Orleans-y kind of more soulfully um, places we were going and putting it into the story, it felt like the right language to tell the story in. Jesus, Jesus. 
looking back on your whole journey of mute math, spirituality, creativity, where these questions that you first started engaging with, you know, when you were even thinking creatively about moving from what you established in your EP and your first album, where are you now? Are you still trying to figure that out? Well, it depends what it depends what you're talking about. I mean, there's so many avenues there. So, are, are you meaning just musically, stylistically, or are you talking? I, I'd say even spiritually, you know, because that was such a component to the questions you've been asking along the way. Right. Um, I feel like it's important for me in the next collection of songs that I'm writing that. I'm, I'm finding a way to bridge gaps. I'm finding a way to reconcile, and something we had talked about before, sort of reconcile this scientific, logical perspective of, of things that are mystical and still squaring them up with, I guess, sort of the, what's the right word? The code language or the, I guess, the, the religious point of view um, and not that they have to be mortal enemies. Right. And maybe that's a bit of being a hopeless romantic when it comes to those things. Um, because there's a lot of times I just, I paint myself in a corner with this goal. Like I, I can't get it there. Um, but I want to believe that there's a way. And so that sort of blind belief in that philosophy is, is what's informing a lot of the lyrics that I'm writing and, and what I'm trying to just, you know, there's so many things that speak further when there's just the melody on it and the lyric can actually read kind of dumb and simple, but when you put it Within the right melody and chords, it's amazing how all yeah. of a sudden it can mean more. It can it can yeah. represent more, and that's the thing that I love about music. and And perhaps that is the yeah. only common bond between this scientific, logical place and this is the arts. It is. It's yeah. it's the arts that can kind of bridge that, um, and as long as it's it's embedded in a sincere, I don't know intention a truth mm -hmm. there's a chance there's a chance that um you know i don't know i'm i'm, I'm wigged out by the divide that seems to be happening yeah um in you know not only this like the country the world the, the polarizing political climate we're in but i, I feel like there's parallels to this to, to religion as well and, and, and where its place is in culture. And so I'm after that. That's, that's what I'm, I'm after most of the songs I'm writing now. You know, I'm, on my last episode that I came out with, I guess yesterday, <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by, there, there's this guy, Ian McGilchrist, who he wrote this book on... Um, his main field of study is the left and right brain. And it is interesting because I, I know I've heard for years, a lot of people assume music to be more of a right brain phenomenon than a left brain. But, um, but really music engages like 16 different parts of your brain at once just to listen to a song. 
So I, I think even to what you're saying about like uh, a lyric, a simple lyric added to a melody with, and then you throw in rhythm, you throw in other voices. There is, it's very different than reading that word on a page because if you're just reading those words on a page, it's only engaging one little part of your brain that right. has to do with with language, which is more of a left brain phenomenon. I I think part of my struggle over the years, you know, so so the the right hemisphere of your brain tends to be more where you uh, engage in abstraction, where you can see the big picture. It's more unitive. It's more about you know our empathy and and the left hemisphere of your brain tends to be focusing on the particular words, logic, you know, um, but this guy, Ian McGilchrist, you know, he's been pioneering a lot of work on this. And, and I, as I'm reading his work and stuff, I'm, I I really do think that that, that is the magic of music in a sense, because I mean, if music takes, 16 different parts of your brain just to listen to it, then it's at least twice that many when you're trying to play music and sing. But I think that's part of my frustration. Even when I look at a lot of the modern worship music or even Christian music, but you don't even have to apply it to that. You can look at very politically charged music as well. Some people, uh, there's an artist I heard the other day that just came out with a song that was just so over the top political. I'm like, dude, I've been a fan of yours for years, but I'm out now, you know, Mm. (laughs) and it's not even, and I've had that experience of like, even somebody like Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen, hell of a songwriter. Sometimes I think getting so left brain and so focused on these words, it takes away from the, the right brain. You're absolutely right. That because I mean, that's where somebody like Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan has, written some songs that have definitely challenged politics and challenge, but he's never been known for this dude. who's just going to get out there and protest stuff all the time. He lets the music speak for itself, which has probably been one of his greatest career right. moves. Right. But I think there is, I think that's one of the, the beautiful things that, uh, about music is there is something particular you're saying it, but you're saying it in a way that is universal, that, that connects with something um, which all people experience. And when, when those two things come together, it's great. My problem with a lot of the modern worship music and modern Christian music is like, it's so didactic. It's so much about like, we have to communicate this particular doctrine or idea. And the music is just kind of very much secondary, you know? And so it's like, the music is actually serving, it's the, it's the delivery. It's like, you know, if you have a dog and you got to give your dog some medicine, you take it and you coat it in peanut butter or cheese, you know, so, and it's like music is, I see in religious circles, music so often just serves this it's, peanut butter and cheese Yeah, <laughs> right. to, 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 to get the idea in as if the idea is the most important thing, but there's no beauty in that. Right. There's nothing transcendent about that, that there's nothing. Cause I'm amazed at how many, I'm, you probably have this experience of life too, but how many songs that have impacted me at certain points in my life where I never even realized what the words were. Right. You know, and then it's like decades later, I, I finally get around to looking at the words. I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this is quite fascinating. The words were important, but it wasn't, imp- it was something about this 
concept that connects with so many different places of your emotions and your intellect and stuff that, uh, I don't know, it reach and when that stuff comes together, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing. Musicians team definitely are much more right brain. Um, but I think one of the difficulties for people in the arts, why, why they tend to go a little bit more liberal on the, the scale of things is because, Music is a universal language. It is you, like you can't participate in this thing and be too stuck in your tribal thing for too long if mm-hmm. you're going to make anything compelling. Right. And you start doing that. It, it just by interacting with music, it, it pulls you into a, a, a much wider world. But uh, I don't know where I'm going with all that. Well, no, I mean, it's, <laughs> such, a, it's such a great point because the thing that, that blows my mind is how a hit song that happens in America, big song, resounds with huge audiences. All of a sudden, an artist will find themselves, their audience doubles up. Shows are selling out. That's an exciting time for an artist when that starts happening. Like a song is doing work for yeah. you. What's amazing to me is nine times out of 10, that same song will do the same thing in countries that don't speak the language. Yeah. Um, there's just something about an energy within a song that works that it's lightning in a bottle in a lot of ways, you know, and I think a lot of people try to tell that they, they can crack the code on that. They know a song has <laughs> got to do X, Y, and Z. It's got to say a certain thing, but there is something subliminal about a vocal delivering a lyric that just feels believable. I don't even know what you're saying, but yeah. it feels believable. It feels engaging. And the, the surrounding cast of the music, like when all those things come together, man, it transcends just reading it. Or, oh, yeah. um, and it will, it will do that in countries that don't even speak the language. They're just yeah. reacting to it on the same primal level. And that's the thing that blows my mind about music. And so many times, like, if I'm in the studio and let's say I'm I'm trying to help a, an artist record one of their songs and they're still trying to write it and figure it out, you know, you're trying to, ah, that's, that line doesn't sing well or it's not really what I want to say. And so many times it's just about tr- put the lyric sheet down and we're going to press record and just sing something that feels natural and... You just know it. You know it when you hear it. And that is the lyric you should do. I know it's not the best lyric that you've written down. It doesn't support your your title the way. And we're yeah. not crossing all the T's and dotting the I's of what a great lyric should do. But there's something about it that actually you sang that line better. It's you as a singer, you will sing wow. yeah. a lyric better when it's somehow believable, even if it's a dumber lyric or mm. just it's it's. Uh, that's not what I want to say but for some reason it's what your soul wants to say you should just go with that Wow! and that's and that's an amazing way how songs yeah can come together and take on their best form even when you start getting too uh, I guess left-brained about it and like trying to analyze the lyrics you're pulling out the source trying to find a better word trying to get too clever with it (laughs) and how many times when I'm writing a song um, it was really about when I just was just kind of letting go, and then all of a sudden, yeah, the best vocal take is usually singing the right lyric, um, <laughs> even if it's not the one you wanted. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just something happens, and that's the stuff that I think resounds uh, to the listener 
it's just got to be believable. It's got to be yeah. something about it that's got to feel exciting and alluring. Um, so I don't even know how we got on that, but I back either. to the idea of this is this is turning into like one of those long episodes of Joe Rogan, and and we still haven't ever got to the thing that we were actually going to talk about today, which maybe we ought to just. Um, wrap this up here because we've probably even got like a two-part episode just in what we talked about thus far <laughs> would you agree to come back in a couple of weeks and do sure. part two and get to the other things you know sure. it's uh but i i think this is this this to me is the most interesting conversations right now because as a pastor i mean i've i've gotten into the world i've i've read a ton of theology over the years and i'm i'm interested in it well not so much the last few years, but you, I think just, you know, that left brain thing, you get so fatigued by just working on concepts, particularly within a very limited framework. And I, you know, I've, I've just found over the years and I think it is because I've played music and, um, I think that part of me, it just always rebels against this, like, okay, it's good to have logical thoughts about things at the end of the day though i think some of the greatest windows into god if there is a god it comes through beauty through transcendence through music through these through love i mean through those things which you yeah you can try to explain them as much as you want in in very logical scientific terms but at the end of the day you can't explain why the heck this thing works and why would you want to why would you want to? Um, and so I, I just find myself so frustrated in the church world because it's just like so often we're just going to talk about these ideas within this framework and either, either you fit into this box or you don't and then you're going to get ostracized. And uh, I think when it comes to people who've, who've not grown up with faith or who may have left the faith, I, I really think when it, when it comes to art, whether it's compelling literature or music or even film, these things give us a whole different way to encounter, to, to talk about the divine. Because I think when you get down to even your experience of God, you know, I've been talking a lot the last few episodes about mystical experiences, it's so interesting when you read accounts of people having these mystical religious experiences, whether they're within religion or without, you know, outside of religion, these experiences are filled with vibrant imagery. Right. There, there's a sense in these experience of feeling I'm connected with the universe, with everybody, that all truths are, are, are converging into one great truth. And, and there's this just quality the, the fascinating thing, though, when you look at these accounts of religious experiences, mystical experiences, is not just the experiences themselves, but how they actually change the person. The person goes on to, to, to live a qualitatively different life. Right. And I think that, you know, that's part of where I'm interested of, of talking about faith. And I'm, I'm hoping... I'm hoping the conversations that we begin to have about faith and spirit, I, I, I feel like they're beginning to happen more and more, but just moving outside of just this very didactic place of it's either this or that, or, you know, moving into something larger that 
I think that impulse that you were sharing about, about, you know, after the first, the, the self-titled album that, you know, you start moving into a, a, a different world where you start seeing you have a lot more in common with the people that, <laughs> um, the good and bad, starting with the universal, starting with the things that all connect us. Now, I think ultimately it is good to commit to a path. There's great value in that. I, don't think, I think if you don't actually commit to a path, you're not going to see quite the benefit in your life. But we will table these type of topics for uh, maybe our next conversation that we can have here, uh, maybe a little bit down the road. But here we are, uh, hour and 20 minutes in. I think we've uh, exhausted the covered <laughs> How- the, the biography of Mute Math and Paul Meany. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me. We'll do it again. Yeah, thanks, Paul. All right, well, that is uh, part two of the conversation with Paul Meany. That wraps that conversation up. And hopefully in a couple of weeks, we will get back to uh, some of the questions that Paul was asking me. We may do a little ro- role reversal and put, put Paul in the interview seat. Because <laughs> I know he has some questions for me now that I've walked through his whole uh, biography of him and Mute Math. So... We're going to go out on a Mute Math song from the newest EP, A Voice in the Silence. This one is called EN 2018. Well, thanks for blessing your ears with some extra crispy. 